0: By the talk, uh, I'm going to read this familiar story. Just just before I do, I kind of have to get this little personal thing off my chest about the editors of the um, the Bible. Here, all these headings that you see in the text in bold, in, in uh, italics, and bold—they're not part of the original text. They're put in by the people who edit the Bible and put it together to sort of break up the text to make it a little bit easier for us to sort of digest it. So, we're going to read the parable story Jesus told of the lost son according to the editors here but actually that's a really unhelpful title for this story I'm dare I say they've even got it wrong well go with me look let's just read the first line of the story verse 11 Jesus continued there was a man who had two sons so we can tell immediately the story that Jesus tells is about a man who had two sons so this is a story about a father and two sons it's not a story about a lost son I suggest. <laughs> anyway, well, I w- please, if you don't mind, can you, if you can hear the story, if you can, when you hear the story, listen to the two sons and the father. That's what I'd like you to hear as we read it. I think that's what Jesus wanted to hear as well. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And is found. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds as we look to allow your spirit to search us, to cleanse us, to renew us. Speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. We've been thinking in this little uh, series, as as Lydia says, on a kind of spiritual M.O.T., the idea that we sort of lift the bonnet of our lives and allow the the mechanic, who is the Holy Spirit, to uh, check the engine and the oil levels and and fluids and everything else, uh, so that we might drive the life of Christ as effectively and efficiently as possible, that we live lives that make a difference. Uh, and the only thing, all analogies fall short. The only thing with that analogy is it's, it's rather inanimate, it's in, impersonal. Uh, and today what I really want to uh, uh, try and help us to focus on is, um, so I'm slightly struck by that noise. Is that, I think it's a fox, isn't it? It's a baby. Oh, I'm so sorry, it's a baby, I didn't, <laughs> I'm so sorry. The pillar, I couldn't see the pillar, ve- and I could hear the, ve- oh, that's, how wonderful, how wonderful, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Just I could hear the noise. I'm really, really sorry. Actually, it's far too nice for a fox. Oh, I'm so sorry. Beam me up now, Scotty. Oh, how wonderful! How wonderful! Yeah. Um, I've completely lost my thread now. Where was I? As uh, inanimate. Uh, that's right. And I, it, what's, um, what I'd love us to think about. This evening is actually the person involved in this. We're, we're involved with a relationship with God. It's, it's not a kind of mechanical exercise, a tick-box exercise. These sheets that you've got in the Bibles, you, you may be forgiven for thinking oh, it's a sort, of, a sort of tick-box exercise. No, we're coming to the heart of the Father. And uh, we've been thinking about how, as we seek to live the Christian life, we, we encounter something of a wrestle, of a struggle. Because we live in the physical realm, the physical world, if you like, within the spirit realm. If you were here last week, I had a sort of sponge and a bowl of water in it. The water enters the sponge because the sponge is porous. It's designed to receive water. But the, sponge, uh, the water also enters the sponge because there's pressure. The water exerts a pressure on the sponge. And we are spiritually porous. We 're created to tune into God and, and and we become aware of a benevolent, a good pressure it's good to, to drink in truth and beauty and wonder and, and righteousness and justice. but we become aware too that's why we don't live lives if we 're totally honest that are completely effective for God because we become aware too of of a of a kind of um, a, a, a spiritual force, a, a kind of pressure that is That is not benevolent. That is malevolent. That that seeks to throw us away from God and off route. And that's the wrestle, the struggle that Paul so often describes in his letters. I'm really sorry. I feel so bad. Please, honestly, now that I know, now that I know what that lovely sound is, you're so welcome to stay. (laughs) Church empties. (laughs) Worst nightmare. I'm so sorry. I intercepted this, um, this uh, email. Um, I don't think I was meant to get this. It was uh, the minutes of a meeting that Satan held. Um, he had a number of his worldwide demons at a convention. Uh, and this is what he said. We can't keep Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from forming an intimate relationship with their savior. And once they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So let them go to their churches, he told the demons, and let them sing their songs. But let's steal their time so that they don't have time to develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. You remember Satan's chief strategy is deception. Keep them busy, he said, in the non-essentials of life, and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds. Tempt them to spend, 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 and borrow, borrow, borrow. Persuade them to work six or seven days a week, ten or twelve hours a day, so that they can afford their empty lifestyles. Keep them from spending time with their children and families, because as families fragment, soon their homes will offer no escape from the pressures of work. Overstimulate their minds so that they cannot hear that still small voice. Entice them to play the radio or the iPod whenever they drive. Keep the TV and box sets and Netflix going constantly in their home. Fill the coffee tables with magazines and newspapers. Fill their screens with news and gossip 24 hours a day. Invade their driving moments with billboards. Flood their mailboxes with junk mail and pop-up ads offering free products and false hopes. Make sure that the models in the magazines and TV ads are square-jawed and ripped or skinny and beautiful so that they will believe that outward beauty is preferable to inner character. Make them so preoccupied that they become dissatisfied with how they look. Give them Santa Claus to distract them from teaching their children the real meaning of Christmas. Give them an Easter bunny so they won't talk about his resurrection and power over sin and death. Have them return from the gym exhausted. Keep them busy, busy, busy. And when they meet for spiritual fellowship, involve them in small talk so they never really build deep friendships and entice them into gossip so that they leave with a slightly troubled conscience. Crowd their lives with so many good causes that they have no time to seek power from Jesus. Soon they'll be working in their own strength, sacrificing their health and family for the good of the cause." We were talking about the enemy seeking a foothold, an opportunity to get into our thoughts in such a way that he develops a stronghold so that he can influence not just the little actions that we do. Sin is not just occasionally doing something wrong or occasionally saying something wrong. It's the actions that we do from a a pattern of thinking that is wrong. Someone summed up, the malaise of the Christian church in the 21st century as being those who worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. How affronted would you feel if I was to suggest that if you had a ticket to the theatre, you'd turn up on time? but if I give you an invitation to come to church, you might turn up on time or a little bit later, and that's okay. And if you're affronted by that, it may be that I'm being offensive, or it could be that there's a stronghold at work in your mindset that thinks that the worship of the one true living God is way down the list of priorities to watching Annie in the West End. How do we dismantle the strongholds? Listen, I could stand here and give you tips and techniques. I could how-tos. And that won't cut it. Because the real thing is to cultivate a right, a consistent right thinking about God. When we have a consistent right thinking of who God is, like the father in this story, then, then why would we want to deviate from him? Why would we want to run away. Why would we want to hide? Oswald Chambers said that most sin originates from the belief that God is not enough. Most sin originates from the core belief, I would argue a stronghold of the enemy, distorting the way in which we think, convincing us that God is not enough. You see the deception, you see the, the craft there. He's not saying God doesn't exist. The devil's not stupid. He knows that Christians need to have God. What he's saying is, yeah, God, and. And then what he walks on is making the and much more attractive than God. It just, God, a little bit outdated, a little bit out I mean, good for the 19th century, but we're in the 21st century, our sophisticated lot. You need this and that and these. And so we cling on to, they're called idols. They're just things, that there may be good things, but when we make good things, God things, they become idols. And then we worship them. And before we know it, we're gripped by them. And our, our whole worldview, our whole mindset is shifted. How do we dismantle these strongholds? It is the gift of repentance. Might sounds like a contradiction in terms, that phrase. A gift is usually a good thing, isn't it? It's a nice thing, it's a pleasant thing. We open it and it immediately brings joy, satisfaction. We don't necessarily make that assumption or association, rather, with repentance. I want to try and show you this evening that repentance is the best gift that God could possibly give us. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, chapter two, verse four, he talks about the kindness of God Leading to repentance, that when we when we realize just how kind how patient God is with us it, it it leads us into turning towards him and away from those things that lead us away from him and so this story in luke 's account of jesus' life this uh, i 'm guessing it 's familiar to many of us here it may be that Some of you have not heard, it's only a a story Jesus made up. Um, I can tell that you were all 21st century Western people because when I read the story, you weren't laughing and gasping because Jesus' audience would have done. The first century in Palestine, there are so many ridiculous things in this story. So for example, the younger son who goes to the father and says, father, give me my share of the estate. In Jesus' day, the at the estate, the land, the house was all that you had. You didn't have like, stocks and shares and other insurances. You didn't have the welfare state. So what daddy owned was basically what you were going to inherit. So to ask for his inherit- your inheritance when he was still alive was effectively saying, I wish you were dead. It, it, I mean, that, it doesn't read like that to us in our softened Western ears, but that's, that's, that's an unbelievable insult in cultural terms. Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me, I want, I want what's mine now, which means I need you out of the way. And behind that is that kind of search for freedom. I, I want off. He takes his inheritance and he goes to a foreign land. And again, Jesus' hearers would have heard that as unbelievably shameful. Because again, you see, your father's estate was, was home and, and everything. It was life. So for you to leave your father's estate, to leave home prematurely, was it was the cultural equivalent of flicking these signs at your dad? It was hugely shameful. So when when Jesus tells this story, when he listens here, they're kind of shocked by this. is quite a fruity story. I wonder where this is going. The son who leaves home. Do you see what he's saying? That younger son. Is that he's saying to the father, "You're not enough. I don't believe that you are enough. I want. I want. I want." I want freedom. I want independence. I don't need you. I'll carve my own path. I'll live my own life, thank you. You're not enough. Strongholds there of, of independence, self-reliance. Setting up the way in which he thinks and acts. And look what it does to him in the story. See how it shifts his identity he, in his own eyes, he goes from being a son to a slave. He, he said it himself in the story. He's rehearsing this speech. Uh, he says, verse 18, bottom right at the bottom of page 990. I'll set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He's, he's twisted his own understanding of his own identity. How's that happened? He's, he's swallowed the lies. He's prone and prey to spiritual strongholds in his, in his mindset, in his thinking. But the older son is in one sense no different, although he stayed at home, he hasn't gone away. But the father is not enough for him. You see, when there's a celebration going on, there's music and dancing, and he hears that. Now, what's going on here? Well, the father has called a party. He's called a celebration, and that's the father of the estate. So everyone's involved, including the older son. And he hears the music and dancing. He ought, he ought to start, you know, moving to the beat and getting into the dance hall. But he, stay, he keeps his distance. He's just as far away from the heart of the father as the younger son effectively he's saying the same thing he's saying you're not enough it's not enough i want more recognition did you did you hear it in the thing when the the father comes out by the way just as an aside here's another thing shocking in the story we miss it but first century here is the patriarch the father figure, he was a kind of grand stately figure. He would wear, he'd be clothed accordingly with big sort of heavy robes. He was the center of the sort of, of the whole family gravity. He, everything orbed around him. If you wanted an audience with the, fa- the father, you move to him. He's sitting in his chair or his room and you go to him. Have you noticed with the two sons, in each case, the father goes. The father runs to the younger son. And when the older son refuses to join the party, keeps his distance, it's the father who goes to him. Verse 28. His father went out to him and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, listen to this, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, but you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate. And yet when this son of yours comes, you kill the fattened calf for him. Stronghold of... Entitlement. You owe me. Look how good I've been. Self justification. I've done all these things and you haven't even given me. It's not enough. You're not enough. It's the root of all sin. God is not enough. And so he takes matters into his own hand. How's that that stronghold manifest? He's angry. There's a celebration going on and he's angry. Very often, if you, if you find yourself in, in sort of here somewhere, your heart, your spirit, out of kilter with what you perceive is going on, it could be that the thinking has just got skewed. That in some way, this is, if you like, a, a realization, a wake up call, that there's a stronghold at play in your life that is not enabling you to line up with where God is. In this instance, the Father's celebrating and the Son is angry. And it's the Father who goes to the Son. And the son says, you owe me. He's just as far away as the younger son. Did you you notice in the text, all these years, verse 29, all these years I've been slaving for you. Ah. You see, if the son was living in his true identity, he should say, all these years I've been sunning with you. All these years I've been a son. But can you see how again? contorted thinking, twisted thinking. And he himself, like the younger son, he shifted his identity. Make me like one of your hired servants, younger son. All these years I've been slaving for you, older son. God is not enough. We distance ourselves from him and we shift our identity. We shift in our thinking who we are. Now here's the thing. to both of those sons, twisted in their thinking and far away from the father, the father comes running. The father goes to them. I want to suggest that repentance begins with God. It's his kindness. It's his initiation that he gives us a way in which we can recognize him and respond. It doesn't start with us. It starts with a running father. If you want to do a little bit more uh, digging into this story, uh, um, arguably one of the best-known stories that Jesus has told, then you could do a lot worse than get a hold of a book by Tim Keller, uh, entitled Prodigal God. Tim Keller, until very recently, was uh, a church leader in a Presbyterian church in, uh, in New York, and, uh, or in Manhattan, I think. Uh, planted several churches he's recently written a number of books this is one of the uh, best books and he, he's entitled the book prodigal god prodigal god um, this story in, in older versions when they put in the title <laughs> still not a very helpful title but it was um they used to give the title prodigal son do you maybe familiar with that the, the story of the prodigal son Um, funny word prodigal uh, it's kind of an uh, old word it just means uh, reckless or extravagant or even sort of wasteful and I guess the editors have read the story and seen the story of the younger son and they thought oh yeah he took his father's and and spent it all and, and that was very wasteful it was extravagant it was prodigal this is the story of the prodigal son and Keller in this book is helping us to sort of say well I wonder what Jesus is really teaching in this story is it just about the younger son or actually, are there two sons, both of them in trouble, both of them distanced? And actually, the real emphasis is not on the sons, they're just features in the story to spotlight the father. Maybe the prodigal bit, the wasteful, extravagant, spending until you've got nothing leftness, refers to the father's love. That he's so extravagant, so Yeah, just just selling himself, the whole of himself for his boys. It's the prodigal God that Jesus wants us to see. I wonder whether you have experienced God's love for you as reckless, extravagant. Think of the woman. A woman in Jesus' Male-centered society who broke through the ranks. I don't know how she managed that. That took some courage and bravery. She had an alabaster jar of perfume, and they've calculated in the Gospels that the perfume would have cost a year's wages. It's twenty-five, thirty thousand, thirty-five thousand 30,000, 35,000 pounds worth of perfume. And she breaks it and pours it on Jesus' feet, and everyone goes, Oh, right, could have been spent on the poor. You could have done this. Could have done what a waste. What a waste, yes. Jesus sees the waste poured over him and he receives it as a sign so that we can see that something as outrageous as that is actually right at the center of God. Such extravagant, wasteful love on us. Could you begin to believe that God could see you like that? That he would waste 35 grand on you. That he would pour out his life for you. Because unless we begin to see God like that, we'll find repentance hard. It'll be a negative thing. It'll be a sort of punitive thing. It'll be like a sort of penance. But if we begin to see God like, the father in this story, the prodigal God, the loving God. Then we'll begin to see repentance as a gift, enabling us to embrace him, to receive him, to celebrate with him, fat and calf and all. Just just look with me at how Jesus describes the father. And I wonder what's going through Jesus' mind as he describes this kind of love. Look at verse 20. This is as the younger son is coming to the father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Let's just pause on that. We can see things, don't we, when they're right in front of our face. When when people bump into us and say, oh. Or we walk into a room and we, oh, they've changed something. We, We see it when it's right in front of us. What about when something is a long way off? We don't tend to see things a long way off so easily unless we're looking for them. Why he was still a long way off, this son who's basically flicked up two fingers to the father, taken his extravagance and sp- taken his inheritance and spent it all has wasted his life and the father is still looking for him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with bitter anger and hatred towards him. Do you see it in the text? It's not there, is it? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. With compassion. He ran to his son. You remember what we said about patriarchs? They don't do that. It's very undignified. You know, kind of when you're senior in years, you kind of, you, you're bossing life. You, you walk. Everything goes at your pace. You don't know, run in response to other things. He threw his arms around his son and kissed him. I wonder what's going on in Jesus' mind as he thinks of uh, and describes this father with all the indignity of having to sort of hitch up his robes and with his bandy, varicose veined legs. He's running to his son to this son who stinks probably, having been sitting in a pig pen and he throws his arms around him and kisses him. Jesus must be thinking in some way, in in, in as much as he's able to understand this, the trajectory of his own ministry on earth. he, He knows that in some way, he too is going to be stripped naked, undignified, don't, don't be fooled by this uh, figure here, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of Victorian sensitivities, Jesus on the cross, he's got a discreet loincloth, so we can't see his genitalia, Mm-mm. you read all the historians of the day, they were stripped naked, everyone crucified, not just Jesus, and they hung there, part of the shame was just the nakedness, exposed for everyone to see, laugh at, scoff at as well as the physical pain and torture of crucifixion, and for Jesus, the spiritual separation. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He is going to go through the greatest indignity and test and trial. His reputation is going to be trampled on the cross. He is cursed so that we can be kissed. And what about this in verse 22? The father says to his servants, quick, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. A robe. Well, a robe is a sign that you're chosen. It it marks you out. It's it's a sign of being valued, and a ring. A ring is a sign even today. Uh, our area bishop, he has his wedding ring on one finger, and on a finger on his other hand. He has a uh, the, the sort of ring of authority of his office as bishop. It's it's a sign of authority. You are significant. And sandals on the feet. Uh, clearly, we pick up from the story here. This. Servants. It, the father talks to servants. There's more than one servant. He's obviously quite wealthy. There's a number of domestics. Let's not think of servants as sort of downtrodden, you know, living in some kind of dungeon somewhere in rags. Often they were as well looked after and well fed and cared for as the children of the household. Uh, it would be difficult just from a physical appearance to distinguish between a son and a, a servant, like a sort of, you know, daily help or domestic or a nanny, if you like. But one of the marks that distinguish a son from a servant was that the son and family members wore shoes or sandals, and often the servants would go barefoot in a in a you know a hotter climate that was you know perfectly acceptable, and that was one of the distinguishing factors. So when the father orders for the servants to bring sandals for his son, he's saying no. He's effectively saying when the, the son's saying, like, make me like one of your hired servants. No, I cannot receive you. I cannot know you or love you like that. I, I will put sandals on you to denote your sonship, and as a son, you belong to the family. Now, if you were here last week, and forgive me if, if you weren't, but um, I, I was talking about a um, child psychiatrist who has written a couple of books, and he talks about the way in which we we feel so completely human and and full. We live our lives as God intended them. He has this picture of us like a big tank inside us, love or truth tanks. And the the truth tanks are made up of three things. The, The knowledge that we belong, the knowledge that we're valued, and the knowledge that we're significant. And the enemy, he makes play on the leakage in the tanks. If we don't feel we belong, or we don't feel we're completely valued, or we don't feel that we're completely significant, the tank begins to leak, and it's into that gap that the enemy darts with alternative propositions maybe god isn't good enough M- maybe you don't really belong maybe he doesn't really know you maybe you're not up to much and he plays on that because we know deep down we want to belong we want to feel valued we need to feel significant so we'll we'll clutch at anything that helps us to feel those things do you see what the father says to the son in this story Bring a robe that he might know he's valued. Bring a ring that he might know with authority he is significant. Put sandals on his feet. He's a son. He belongs. The father is filling the son's love tanks so that he might know just how good it is to belong to the father and to live in his household and to benefit from all that he has repentance begins when we dare to believe that God that God really is that good repentance begins when we dare to believe that God really is that good we have to work with, I think, some of our cultural uh, suppositions. I, I don't know, you, I've often seen them around sort of Covent Garden, if I'm around there, uh, maybe elsewhere, They're these guys, you see them occasionally, they stand on the street corners and they have a, I mean, in the, in the olden days, but I've even seen them recently, you know, they have a, a sandwich board, a thing on the front of the back that hangs off them with, and often it, it has some kind of um, verse to encourage you to think about God. It's written in Old English. So I have to sort of translate the thing, repent ye, ye, thee, thee, what, does that say? And I look at the guy wearing the thing, and I think, well, if that's what happens to me, if I do do that, then you're not selling it to me, frankly. It, it looks miserable, it looks religious, it looks cold. They sort of stand there like Norman no <laughs> This is about, this is about relationship with the father. It, it's not a punitive thing. It's not penance. I wonder whether sometimes repentance and penance, because they sound a bit similar, maybe we think they're the same thing. Like, a, you know, enacting a punishment for all that we've done wrong. So if I've been, let's say, you know, sinning for eight years, then I need to, in, in order to sort of get right, I need to, to, to carry out eight years of penance to, 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 to make the. No. The, the word in this story, I, I really believe Jesus, when he told this story, it was so inspired. The word is in verse 22. When the son comes and says, oh, I'm no longer worthy. No, 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 I've done all these terrible things. I'm, no, no. You, you think in human terms, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like a one of your high. Yeah, I think you need to learn a lesson. That'd be no bad thing for you, form a bit of character. So how long have you been away? Three years. Yeah, okay, for three years, you can be a hired servant. And then maybe we'll consider sonship. Oh, see what the word is? quick. I don't think that's an accident. Quick, immediate, now. One of my favourite films is The Mission, just indulge me for 90 seconds. Um, About 30 years ago now, Robert De Niro and uh, Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons, he's a slave trader. He's been buying uh, or capturing South American natives and then selling them on. And he's had an epiphany, a, a kind of confession with a Catholic priest. And he, he sees the error of his ways. And so racked with guilt for what he's done to these innocent lives. He, um, he, he, he sort of agrees with this kind of penance, this punitive act. And so for, for I don't know how long, months, years even, he, he walks around dragging this great big net full of, of objects, sort of heavy metal objects, Shields and cups and that kind of thing, and he dra- he drag everywhere he goes, he has to drag them along, and he's he's dragging towards the very natives that he'd once captured, and he's, there's a scene where he's kind of trying to get up this, this muddy money bank and the 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 sack, this great thing he's holding, cat- sort of drags him down. And he slips and slides, and he's cut and bruised, and he's at his wits end. He's he's, he's running out of strength. He's desperate, and these natives with spears in his vulnerability. They notice him on the hilltop and they come running towards him. And there's a tense moment in the film when you think, yeah, they're going to kill him. He's he's sitting duck. He's tied to this great, he's anchored to this penance." And they pause. And one of them draws out a knife and you think, yep, he's going to slit his throat. And with the knife, he goes to the sack, the, the great rope sack, and he hacks through the sack and he cuts off Penance. The very people who were wronged by the character played by Jeremy Irons are the very people who remove his guilt. He is truly free. And Irons collapse and sobs as he realizes the gift that they have given him. And you and I, in our sin patterns, we've wandered away from God. We've effectively said, God. We don't believe you're good enough. And the very God who has everything for us, who made the heavens and the earth, who gave us the breath in our lungs and the ability in our heads and bodies and minds, the earth is Lord's and everything in it. The very God that we offend by that statement comes and gives us repentance. Here, use this to enable you to see just how good I am and just how ruinous will be your wandering to a foreign country or missing out on the party. You can sit in your entitlement if you want to or you can go on your reckless individualistic pursuits but it will only lead you to describing yourself as a slave. It's not the father who says that. They self-identify. That's how bad it had got. And the Father says, quick, as he runs towards them. The Father says, quick, here's repentance. Use this gift in order to embrace all that I have for you. If you've got hold of the sheets, just on the uh, the one entitled, Repentance, Five Principles to Practice. Um, they're tucked in the Bibles or they are spares on the table if you... Just want to refer to these very quickly. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'm literally two minutes away. Five steps to, um, and again, I, I'd hate this to be a uh, a sort of tick box thing or whatever. It, I was employing the analogy of a golf swing this morning uh, when I I had one or two golf lessons to try and help me to play golf. Uh, and so there's the stance, and there's the grip on the club. You've got to think about that. And then there's the address of the ball, and then there's the backswing, and then there's the strike, and then there's the follow-through. So many, Who says men can't multitask? are <laughs> so many things to think about. But there you are. And I, I, my, basically, my golf swing is... It's awful. And I slice pretty much everything. so I'm thinking, sorry. And uh, so I went and had a little lesson. They videoed me from different angles, and the guy watched the thing. And basically, my stance is great. My, my grip is great. My backswing is great. My strike is great. It's the follow-through. It's the follow-through. That, I, and I just can't. It's, I'm meant to do something, and I do something else. So, slices. Everything else is fine, but one bit. And so the idea is rather than me focusing on all the different things, it's just to, get a, just to get a really good swing. So rather than focusing on all this stuff, it's just repentance. But to help us to understand the ingredients of repentance, this 5 art model to recognize when he came to his senses, the younger son. He got to a stage when he came to his senses. Intriguingly, by the way, in the story, we don't know with the older son we know the youngest son comes home, he's embraced celebration, fatty calf. We know the younger son's come home. The father says, this son of mine was dead, he's alive, was lost, Is found. But we don't know with the older son. It's intriguing. Jesus leaves that story as a little cliffhanger. It's almost as if he's saying, what about you? Will you, if you identify with that older son, are you, are you in or not? Will you, will you recognize where your heart is? Will you recognize how you're effectively saying, God, you're not enough? And whatever it is, whatever stronghold is at play in your mind, keeping you from God, will you will you recognize it? Or help others to speak into it by giving them permission to say, you know what, I, I just wonder, I think I see in you a sense of entitlement, a sense of independence. I, I wonder if there's something there. Will you recognize that? And allow the eyes of your heart to see it. Then will you repent? The, the Greek word that is translated repent uh, most often in in the new testament is a greek word metanoia it just means to change the way you think to change the way you think and it's kind of used or it was in contemporary context it's it's used um, of uh, an army when they're marching and you when you you march you're marching one way and then you stop and you metanoia which is to about turn and march in a different direction so you're walking one way and you recognize that's not the way you want to go So you stop, you metanoia, and you walk in a different direction. So I recognize that the way in which I've been apportioning my time or my energies, the amount of time I spend thinking about dot, 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 as opposed to thinking about dot, 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 is out of kilter. I recognize that and I'm going to stop apportioning so much time or energy and effort to this, turn, in order that I apportion more time, energy, devotion, focus to that. Repent. It's a decision. The, this stuff, this wrestle that Lydia was telling us about is, is played out in the mind. So we decide. We make that decision. We, we take every thought captive, if you remember last week. So here's a thought. I've, I've had a thought. I'm going to take that captive and make it obedient to Christ. i stop walking that way and walk in the opposite direction. I'm going to receive... The forgiveness that God has already wrought for me through the cross. The the prayer is not so much, oh God, please will you forgive me, because he already has. It is to stand up in what we already have. It is to receive what is already ours. The robe, the ring, the sandals, they're already ours. Quick, the Father says. We don't have to wait to earn it. I was just oh gosh, maybe I'll be able to get a ring next week, next year. No. Oh, quick. As we recognize and repent and look to receive all that God has, his forgiveness, it's instantaneous. It's immediate. That's what's so good. That's why it's a gift. That's why it's described as the kindness of God. He's not measly thinking, well, mm-hmm. no, he he wants us in relationship with him so that we live lives that make him look good. So while we're about it, fourth R, is we rebuke the enemy. I hate the way you try and convince me that God is not enough. I will not have that. Be gone with you. Go to the foot of the cross. Satan is a legalist. He knows where he stands. When Jesus said, it is finished, Paul tells us in Colossians that every power and principality was disarmed at the cross. And Satan knows that. Satan, by the way, is a created being. It's not like, it's not like in, this, in this great spiritual wrestle it's kind of god and satan together and we're all sort of around the edge going oh i wonder who's going to win will it be god or will it be satan will it be god or will it be Satan? oh it's close no 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 god in the beginning god satan is just a created angel he's just one of the angels who's fallen he if there's a hierarchy god is here unique and then here's the sort of the angels and archangels all the company of heaven and here's men and women if, if we can kind of put it in a crude habit. But the point is, God is here, and Satan's here. And he has been defeated on the cross. And Revelation tells us one day he will be destroyed. Hallelujah. So just, and he knows that. The trouble is, what he does, he deceives us, so we don't know that. What well, I'm telling you now. <laughs> know your place. In Christ, we are in, so there's God, and there's all the, and here's us. In We are described as in Christ. Where's Christ at the moment? Seated with God, at the right hand of God. Colossians 3, read it, learn it. Feed your soul with this. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We have authority over Satan. So we can tell him, get lost with your lies and your sliming and your twisting and contorting. You have no right to mess around with my thinking and my life, to mess around with our communities, to mess around with our nation and our world. Get lost. That's what a rebuke is. You can use more fruitful language if you like. I'm just in church. <laughs> and finally, replace. This is my, this is my follow-through. Because I can do the whole recognize, repent, receive, rebuke. And, and according to the golf coach, that's all fine. It's the last stage. Replace. How are you, as you look to turn and walk in the opposite spirit, how are you going to do that? What will you do? On the back of the sheet, if you want to take it home, if it's helpful, one or two suggestions. The top half there is a kind of template prayer you might like to adopt for yourself. Kind of put it into your own words uh, for a a prayer of receiving the gift of repentance and walking in it. And some suggestions for uh, if you recognize what it is that's triggered footholds and strongholds in you, triggered wrong kind of thinking, then what is the best way to replace it? To walk in an opposite spirit. So it might be for a spirit of entitlement, and you know, you owe me, is to practice rehearsing one or two of those verses that recognize that the whole of life is a gift. I don't own any of this. The air that I breathe, the relationships that I have, the house that I live in, the friends that I have, all of this is a gift. I am so blessed, a thank you. And to practice that, just just, just sort of overemphasize that, to write the thinking, to walk in an opposite spirit where I'm tempted to envy at others' success, then bless others' success. Actively look out for people who are doing well at work, maybe better than you. Younger, junior, and they're flourishing. They're, they're on a fast track. They're going faster than you. And you No, bless them. That's amazing. You're doing such a good job. I really hope you go far. Practice it. Practice it. Walking in the opposite spirit and see what God unlocks in you when you do it. When you walk out of darkness... And walk into his marvellous light. Daring to believe. That God really is that good. Let's just.